What should normal church life look like? After COVID, there was lots of talk about getting back to normal, both in general life and in church life. But what should that look like? Does normal church life mean that every church should go back to doing exactly what it was doing before the first lockdown? Does it mean we should go back to our view of church and our approach to church that we perhaps inherited from our parents or different ideas we've picked up over time? Well, well maybe, maybe. But the big question isn't how long we've done something for, but what the Bible says. And yet even if we've started off with the Bible's idea of church and our idea of church, even if we've started off with those two things perfectly matched up, uh, which, which I think is unlikely, over time the tendency is to drift And so one of our great needs is to see church life as the Bible pictures it. uh, So that we'll have uh, right expectations as we come to church. And at various points in Acts there are these little breathers, these little summary statements which tell us what normal church life looked like for them. Uh, There are these little summary statements which uh, round off one section of the book uh, before uh, the next stage of the spread of the gospel is described. And we have one of these summary statements here in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And is that not a beautiful description of church life? And so rather than than just skip over it, we're going to spend most of our time this morning seeing what we can learn from this verse uh, before moving on to look briefly at the two miracles at the end of the chapter. Two miracles that uh, at first glance seem very far from uh, normal church life, uh, but are actually a lot more relevant to this topic than we might expect. And so our theme uh, this morning is normal church life, unspectacular but beautiful. Normal church life, unspectacular but beautiful. It was 11.30am last Sunday morning in southwest Nigeria when the first shots rang out. By the time the gunmen left there were around 50 bodies on the floor of the church building, some of them children. Last year in Nigeria 6,000 Christians were killed because of their faith. What would they give to be able to worship in freedom as we are able to do today? No fears about having to put someone outside the door to watch out. No worries about needing to to lock the doors in case anyone storms in. And yet how much do we value what we have? Because there are actually a number of reasons why we can end up thinking very little of the opportunities that we have week by week to come together as a church family and worship God. Uh, 
Now, I know that for many of you, that's not the case, that you don't undervalue what we are doing right now. Various folk at the Bible study on Wednesday were sharing about how church for them was somewhere where they felt safe uh, when they're surrounded by non-Christians so much of the time. Church uh, for them is like an oasis in their week, uh, as it should be for all of us. Uh, And so that is such a joy to hear. And so I I know uh, today that I'm not looking out on a congregation of people who undervalue the privilege that we have. But at the same time, there is something about us as human beings that's always looking for something new and exciting. And we can start to almost despise the routine things that we do week in, week out, including worship. And one reason that we can undervalue week in, week out worship of God is that it often doesn't look like there's much happening. We come one week, morning, maybe evening, we, we, we hear God's word preached, we fellowship with our fellow believers, we come back the next week, doesn't look like much has changed, maybe we think, well, I can just miss a, miss a week or two, I won't miss much. Because it looks week to week like there's not a lot happening. It's almost, it's almost as if the kingdom of God is like a man scattering seed on the ground. And of course it was Jesus who said that that's exactly what the kingdom of God is like. It's, it's like a farmer scattering seed. And the farmer doesn't go out the next day and look for growth the next day and go home into the house devastated to his wife and say, disaster, the seed that I planted yesterday hasn't grown. So Jesus himself is trying to prepare us for the slow and steady growth of the kingdom. And of course, to remind us of the great harvest that there will one day be. But it is a slow process. Nothing happens overnight. And because we often can't see much, if anything, happening, because we can't see much happening, we think, well, well, there's not actually a lot happening. But that would be a mistake. Something else that could cause us to undervalue normal church life is if we have the expectation that the main way God advances his kingdom is through revival. Revival being the name given to the powerful work of God's spirit, to spectacular works of God's spirit where people many people are converted in a short space of time uh, that happen uh, perhaps once every several generations in a country and if we think of revival as the main way God works then there can be the sense that the rest of the time there's not all that much happening and rather than attempt great things for God and expect great things from God There's not much to be done except sit about and pray for revival. I came across a very interesting article the other week in an old Scottish RP Witness magazine uh, from 1881. Its title was Special Revivals versus Ordinary Means of Grace. 
ordinary means of grace being the regular week-by-week worship services. The article was written by a minister who had lived through the Ulster Revival of 1859 and also the visit of the American evangelists Moody and Sankey to the UK 15 years later. And in that article he argues both from scripture and from experience that we are far better to pray and expect and strive that God would be at work among us Uh, both to build up the saints and to save the lost through the pattern he has given us of meeting together Lord's Day by Lord's Day and sitting under his word. He'd seen both and he says, I'll tell you which one I would rather. I'll tell you which one is is better for the long-term health of the body of Christ. Now that phrase, ordinary means of grace, that he uses in the title of the article. You may not have heard of it before, but it's drawn from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I think it's a good description of both the unspectacular and the beautiful. What we do week by week, it is ordinary in the sense that it's unspectacular. If someone were to ask you this afternoon, well, well, what did you do at church this morning? And you said we sang a few songs and a man stood at the front and read the Bible and prayed and preached. They're probably going to say, wow, I never heard of any church that ever did that before. That's that's amazing. So in that sense, the things that we do here week by week, they're ordinary. And yet they're ordinary means of grace. They're things that the God of the universe has appointed so that his grace might be poured out into our lives through them. And that is amazing. And so what can we learn from this picture of normal Christian life here in verse 31? Well, like the Christians in Nigeria, the Christians in the book of Acts, they knew what it was to face murderous persecution But now, for a little while, we're we're told at the start of verse 31 that the Christians here in Acts had peace. Some take it as a reference to peace with God, but but I think in light of of the background of the persecution uh, of Saul and then of Saul himself, his life being sought, I think it's talking about external peace. God is giving the church a breather. And so what we have in the rest of this verse is a picture of what church life should look like in in peacetime. In other words, what church life should look like for us. And we see three things. Uh, The first of which is we see that they're being built up. So firstly, being built up. Sometimes churches have little taglines which seek to explain in a few words what their priorities are. For example, something like building, growing, serving. Or another church might, might have their tagline, building up, reaching out. And taglines like that, they have a natural progression. A tagline like building up, reaching out, it recognises that one should come before the other. It recognises that if we want to see the church by God's grace multiplying, as it is at the end of this verse, then the first priority is that we are built up. And that's the order of this verse. 
First being built up, secondly or lastly being multiplied. Now obviously that, that's not saying that no one can witness to their friends until they reach a certain level of Christian maturity. It's not saying that a congregation can't reach out to the community around us until we reach a certain stage. But if we are not being built up, then our attempts at reaching out will be less effective. Because we'll not be where we should be as Christians and our grasp of the message won't be as good as it should be. So how are congregations built up? How are God's people built up? Well, clearly this is talking about us being built up spiritually, being built up in Christian maturity. Uh, Not about being built up in numbers because that comes at the end of the verse. So how are God's people built up spiritually? To answer that question, it'll be helpful to look back at some of the other summary statements in the book of Acts. Particularly the the first one at the end of chapter 2. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And back when we looked at those verses, we saw how it was a church devoted to the word, devoted to worship, and devoted to fellowship. And the word of God is central. Worship, of course, is what we were created for. But if we don't have the word of God at the center, then we will worship a false god or will worship the true god in the wrong way Uh, the word of god is is central to our fellowship because without the word of god at the center then we have nothing more than than a social club has (coughs) and if we run down through the other summary statements in the book the word of god is always central chapter 6 verse 7 and the word of god continued to increase or chapter 12 24 but the word of god increased and multiplied or at the very end of the book talking about the apostle paul we read he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of god and talking about the lord jesus christ with all boldness and without hindrance what's the common thread running through all those summaries it is the word of god And primarily the public teaching of the word. You may not think that there's much happening here week by week. But if you come humbly, if you come prayerfully, God will be changing you. Here's a question. Do you remember remember what you had for tea two weeks ago on Wednesday? Well, you might, maybe if you, ha- if you have a meal plan and you have the exact same thing on a Wednesday every week or every two weeks, maybe. But, but most of us, we don't remember. But here's another question. Even if you don't remember, did it do you good? Well, yes, it did. You may not be able to remember what you ate two weeks ago on Wednesday, but... You wouldn't be in a good way if you hadn't eaten anything that week. Because even if you can't remember it, it did you good at the time. (coughs) 
My friend Paul Levy, who's a minister in London, puts it like this. He says, preaching at its simplest level is getting people to keep going as Christians for another week. He says, week by week, preaching is your Tuesday night lasagna. You probably won't remember it in two days' time, but it gets you through to the next meal. So being built up, it comes through God's word, primarily through God's word preached, which does us good at the time, even if we can't remember it. But it also comes for those of us who have the privilege of having the Bible in our own language from reading it. So normal church life looks like, firstly, a a group of people being built up through God's word and just in case it needs said there is of course a huge difference between watching a sermon online and gathering publicly with brothers and sisters in Christ who who know you to hear God's word proclaimed as part of the gathered congregation so firstly being built up Secondly, normal church life involves walking in fear and comfort. Last week I recommended David Murray's book, Jesus on Every Page. Murray is a minister in America, but he's originally from Scotland. Uh, When he was here, he was part of the the Free Church Continuing. He was converted, I I think, in his 20s. And soon after he became a Christian, he did a missions trip to Romania. And in Romania, he was on a, a minibus with the rest of the team. And he'd been coming across in his Bible this phrase about fearing God. And he asked the rest of them who'd been Christians longer, he said, are we still meant to fear God today? And they all laughed at him because they had the idea that fearing God is something that Christians have moved beyond And yet here's this idea right here in the New Testament. And years later when the Apostle Paul wants to sum up the universal condition of both Jews and Gentiles, he quotes a line from the Psalms, There is no fear of God before their eyes. And in the very last book of the Bible we hear an angel saying, Fear God and give him glory. And now, perhaps for some of you, that does not seem like good news. You've known perhaps what it is to live in fear of another human being. And so the idea of fearing God does not sound good to you at all. But is that the type of fear the Bible is talking about when it talks about the fear of God? I think it's hard to improve on the old uh, Puritan uh, distinction uh, between what they called servile fear and filial fear. That is the difference between a servant's attitude to his master and a son's attitude to his father. Think of a man who has a servant, a slave even, and a son uh, back in the day. What is it that motivates the slave to obey the master? Well, it's fear of punishment if he disobeys. But what is it that motivates the son to serve his father? Well, 
If he is a good father, it is fear of hurting him, fear of displeasing him. For the slave, fear and love are opposed to each other, but not for the son. And so I hope that's a helpful illustration of what we are and what we're not talking about. But at the same time, we don't want to define the fear of God in such a way that it makes the phrase meaningless. We need to have a right sense that this is the God that we will one day stand before. As the Apostle Paul would go on to say, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Back in the first summary statement in Acts, we read that awe came upon every soul. And it's the same word here, fear. Fear, awe, the same word. This is the God who in chapter 5 struck down Ananias and Sapphira. And we read the great fear came not just upon unbelievers but upon the whole church. And he is the same God today. Do you have the sense that you come before a God who could strike you down just like that if he chose to? And if we feel that church is mundane, is it because we've lost this sense of the fear of God? If we feel that the church is something that we can take or leave, if we feel that the Lord's Day is a day that we can treat however we want, (coughs) is it because we've lost this sense of the fear of God? Because surely we can only think of church as mundane if we've lost a sense of who this God is who is present as we meet together. Or perhaps we don't come fearing God because we come fearing other things. At the very start of lockdown, the verse I preached on was Isaiah 8 verse 12. Do not fear what this people fear, nor be in dread. And yet over the last two years, have we not seen Christian people who have clearly been in fear of COVID? And yet before that in their lives, it had been very hard to ever detect a fear of God. Or on the other side of the coin, have we not seen Christian people who have had more of a fear of government overreach than they have of the fear of God? And It's taken away their ability to rejoice in God. I think in both those cases, something has gone wrong. And one of the great things about a healthy fear of God is that it drives out other fears. As the old quote puts it, fear God and you will fear nothing else. But the flip side is also true. Don't fear God and you will fear everything else. Because if you don't have the fear of God before your eyes, it will leave a vacuum into which every other fear will rush in. And that is our world today. It doesn't fear God, but it fears everything else. So normal church life should be marked by a healthy fear of God. And at the very same time, it should be marked by the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
And these two things aren't opposed to each other. As if Jesus strikes fear into us on the one hand, but the Holy Spirit then comes and comforts us. But rather the Spirit applies the work of Christ to us and brings comfort and encouragement to us through the Gospel. Now these two things, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they they don't just apply to our worship services. We're to be conscious of both those things as we go about our day-to-day lives. As we face temptations on the one hand, uh, temptations to sin on the one hand, and temptations to, to despair on the other. We should act based on the fear of the Lord, and we should seek to draw comfort from the Holy Spirit. So these things don't just apply to church life, but what would church life look like? if they were true of us when we came together. Well, one phrase I I really like, I've used it earlier on in the service, is the phrase gravity and gladness. I think that's a great way to sum up what a worship service should look like. There should be a sense of gravity, a sense of the awesomeness of God as we worship in the fear of the Lord. But there should also be gladness as we suck in the comfort of the Holy Spirit through his word. And something is lost if we come down exclusively on the gravity side or exclusively on the gladness side. Maybe you've been in a church before and you think these people, well, they're they're happy superficially, but there is no sense of God here. Or you come to another church and you think, well, these people are, are really serious about God, but, but there is no joy. We lose something if we leave out either gravity or gladness. So normal church life, it involves being built up. It involves walking in fear and comfort. And our final heading is that it involves growth. Growth. Those last two words, it multiplied. This is God's work, it's not ours. As is building up, by the way. Uh, We read that the church was being built up. God was the one building it up. And the last phrase could be translated exactly the same way. The church was being multiplied. God is the one building it up and God is the one multiplying it. If the grammar of that verse tells us anything, it's that our responsibility is to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And if we do, he will build us up and he will comfort us. Now when it says the church multiplied, it's talking about the church singular. In other words, the church as a whole. And what we read here has been true of the church in every age. It has been multiplying as people from more and more nations come to put their trust in Jesus Christ. (coughs) And yet we should also look for growth at the local level too. Because living things grow. And the church as a whole won't be growing if individual churches aren't growing. We live at a time when the narrative is that churches are declining and closing. Uh, Someone said to me recently that it's just a sign of the times. 
But as I tried to point out in my free press article last week, the, the studies that have been done on this, they all identify that the churches that are closing are those that don't believe the Bible. Whereas around the world, wherever you look, growing churches are those who aren't ashamed of the Bible. And so to bring it right home to us, what do you expect for our own congregation? Do you expect decline or growth? Well, to a great extent, in spiritual things, we get what we expect of the Lord. Those aren't my words, they're Charles Spurgeon's. To a great extent, in spiritual things, we get what we expect of the Lord. If you expect deadness and decline, you'll probably get it. If you expect your children to rebel, it won't be all that surprising when they do. But on the other hand, if you expect Jesus Christ to keep building his church, by God's grace, that is what you will see. It's not that our expectations affect the results. Spurgeon knew that. But our expectations do affect our actions. They do affect what we pray for. Just like you can sometimes tell about a football team by their body language that before they even kick off the match that they have lost that they are going to do nothing but lose it's just solely from their body language in some churches there is the atmosphere that they expect nothing but decline and to a great extent we get what we expect of the Lord sometimes God is gracious he gives us what we don't expect what we perhaps don't even pray for but often we get what we expect. And you say, well, well, God is sovereign. Well, absolutely God is sovereign. But he delights to glorify himself in response to the faith-filled prayers and actions of his people. As Jonathan said in 1 Samuel, let us go over to the garrison of the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work through us to save by many or by few. Our attitude must be, let's do this, let's take action, and it may be that the Lord will work through us to save by many or by few. But just to start to draw things to a close today, what is it that gives us this confidence? The confidence that normal church life isn't just an interlude between revivals, is it the power of positive thinking? Well, not at all. Quite simply, what gives us confidence is the belief that Jesus is still at work. <coughs> Do you remember the opening words of the book? Luke tells us how in his first book, his gospel, he'd written about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What does that imply? It implies that in the book of Acts, Jesus is still doing and teaching. And he's still doing and teaching today by his spirit through the church. And that's the big point of these two miracles of Peter that are recorded in the closing verses of the chapter. Jesus is still at work. Both the miracles are very similar to miracles that Jesus did when he was on earth. Aeneas was paralysed. Boys and girls, that meant he couldn't move his arms or legs and he just had to lie in a bed all day. 
And Jesus too had healed a paralysed man. A man who four friends brought to Jesus and they made a hole in the roof and lowered him down. And do you remember what Jesus said to that man when he healed him? He said, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And what does Peter say to Aeneas? He says, rise and make your bed. It's not just that Peter is copying Jesus' actions, but it's that Jesus himself is at work through Peter. As Peter puts it, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Yes, I'm standing here, but Jesus Christ is the one healing you. Peter is just the instrument. Just as Paul was described as an instrument back up in verse 15, Jesus Christ is the one doing the healing. And it's the same for us as we gather on a Sunday morning, a Sunday evening. Jesus Christ is the one healing. Jesus Christ is the one building up his people. As people are converted, as their guilt and sin is dealt with, as they experience new spiritual life, it is not us. It is Jesus Christ doing the healing. And if we forget that, it will lead to despair or pride. If we forget that Jesus is still at work and think it all depends on us, it will lead to despair because we'll realise that we can't change anyone. But on the other hand, if we forget that we are nothing but instruments, it will lead to pride. The second miracle we have here is Dorcas being restored to life. And again with Dorcas or, or Tabitha, what strikes us is the similarity with what Jesus did on earth. And particularly with the raising of Jairus' daughter. What did Jesus do before he raised Jairus' daughter? Mark 5 verse 40. But he put them all outside. What does Peter do here? Verse 40. But Peter put them all outside. What did Jesus say to Jairus' daughter? Talitha kumi. What did Peter say to Tabitha? Well if he was speaking Aramaic which... He probably was. He would have said, Tabitha kumi. Jesus says, Talitha, which means little girl, arise. Peter says, Tabitha, which means Dorcas, arise. There's only one letter different in the two words. And it's not like Peter is deliberately trying to copy Jesus here. But he just instinctively acts the way that Jesus acted. Remember how it was said of Peter and John back in chapter 4 that the people around, even their enemies, recognised that they had been with Jesus. And I wonder, do people say the same thing about us? So the similarities in the miracles, they tell us, yes, that Peter had been shaped by spending time with Jesus. But they also tell us that Jesus is still at work. He says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. He could equally well have said to Tabitha, Jesus Christ raises you up. In both miracles, Peter uses the word rise. Verse 34 to Aeneas, rise. Verse 40 to Tabitha, arise. It's the same word used for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's telling us what the source of the miracles is. It's Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. And so to round it all off, why can we expect normal, ordinary, unspectacular church life to be a means of grace and new life and growth and conversion 
because Jesus Christ is among us by the power of his resurrection. And by his grace, may these words be true of us as a congregation, that we would have peace and be being built up, and that walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we would be multiplied. Amen. Well, let's praise our majestic God now. Turning to Psalm 145, Psalm 145, the A version, starting on page 353. Psalm 145, A, it's verses 8 and 9, and then over the page to 12 and 13. So 8 and 9, and then the last two verses. (coughs) Verse 8 talks about the glory of his kingdom. And why did many of the Jews reject Jesus? Well, because his kingdom didn't look glorious. But Jesus' parables of the kingdom had already made that clear. Jesus' kingdom is glorious, even if it doesn't always look like that. It is a kingdom that has no end and continues from generation to generation. And if we're relying on revivals, well, the kingdom won't continue from generation to generation because there are not revivals in every generation. But what is there in every generation? There is the week by week preaching of the word to build up the saints and save the lost. And then in verse 12 over the page, we sing about fearing God. I don't imagine there are many worship songs written today that talk about fearing God. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why even Christians laugh at the thought of it. But if we're singing the songs that Jesus has given us to sing, we can be sure that they're picturing God as he reveals himself to us. And this fear that we have, as we sing in the very next line, it's not opposed to love. The Lord keeps all who love him. Are we to fear God? Are we to love him? The two aren't in conflict if fear is rightly understood. So Psalm 145, 8 and 9, and then the last two verses we stand and sing praise. <laughs> 